Welcome to the podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. In the meantime, though, I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. If you're borrowing one of our pew Bibles, that is page 816. And when you get there, let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Father God, I want to lift up our our staff families who are experiencing sickness this week and um, who are going through a a difficult season right now. I do pray that you would give them rest and healing and recuperation. I pray that for our other families in our church body who are struggling with sickness. Um, Father, we we see in this text even that you, um, through Jesus, were healing the sick among your people. And we pray that you would give us a hint of that new creation, when, when sickness and disease will be no more for our families this week. Help us get through the season. Help us be able to experience the joy of Christmas um, without dealing with flu and RSV and all, all the other things that are floating around. But Father, I am grateful for the church family who is able to be with us here today as we continue this series through Advent in the book of Matthew. Father, as we look at this troubling moment in John the Baptist's life, I pray that you help us see ourselves that you help us see our expectations for what you're going to do, highlighted and contrasted with the greater promise of what you have done, what you are continuing to do, and what you will do in the future through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Redeemer, you can grab your seats this morning. Uh, Last week, if you were uh, here with us, you uh, got to see Matthew chapter 3, particularly you got to see the very odd figure that was John the Baptist. He was a prophetic preacher, ministering mostly in the wilderness, who had the job of preaching repentance from sin because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was, as Matthew said, a prophesied figure who would cry, prepare the way of the Lord. He brought a word of comfort to God's people and to God's enemies, a word of warning. John then went on to baptize Jesus, serving as God's agent of commissioning for Jesus' ministry. As the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and the Father spoke from heaven in this wonderful demonstration of all three persons of the Trinity working together for their glory and for our good. 
We saw the Father declare Jesus as his Son in whom he was most pleased. And in this moment, John passed the baton to one he said that he had, who possessed sandals that John was unworthy to carry. John is quoted in the book of John 3.30, written by a different John, that he must decrease so that Jesus may increase. He knew his preparatory work for Jesus as the Messiah was coming to a close and that Christ was on the ascendancy. John's ministry, though, was not without controversy. Last week, we saw two religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who came to view John's ministry with angry curiosity, and we saw John rebuke them, calling them children of Satan because of their self-righteousness and because they took comfort in their own power and position, not in the Lord. But John didn't just make the religious in society angry. In fact, according to Matthew 14, he infuriated the politically powerful as well. You see, he called out the terrible behavior of a man named Herod Antipas, who was the puppet king who ruled Galilee on behalf of Rome, and who had begun an affair with and ultimately married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, Philip was also Herodias' half-uncle, and his daughter with Herodias, Salome, who we'll come back to later, ended up marrying her uncle, a different Philip called the Tetrarch. There's a reason we did not preach this text on Family Worship Sunday last week. Some real Jerry Springer stuff going on in this family. And I, I think we can see what John calls this family and their behavior out. Being politically powerful, though, Herod Antipas had John arrested and kept captive. He didn't want to execute him because he didn't want to turn John into a martyr, but he did want to keep him in prison, keep him behind bars to try to silence him. And that's where we see John now, languishing in prison when he starts to hear the news of all that Jesus has been doing and saying since John baptized him in Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> now, if we put ourselves in John's shoes for, for a moment, remembering that John has spent his ministry proclaiming the kingdom's coming through the person of Jesus Christ, only to find himself locked away in what my five-year-old calls the big house. If we're in John's shoes in the big house, we might start to wonder, did we make a mistake? Is Jesus the right guy? Did we hitch our wagon to the wrong horse? Because here we are in prison, trapped, stuck. And with this experience in mind, we might not be surprised by verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John is saying, Jesus, you've got to give me something here. Are you the one I was preparing for, or are you turning around and you're preparing for somebody else? I miscalculated, I misunderstood. You see, John didn't likely expect to spend the coming of the kingdom in a jail cell. Jail cell. That's a hard word to say. He was expecting to Jesus to come in like a wrecking ball, overthrowing the Pharisees, overthrowing the Sadducees, overthrowing the politically corrupt like Herod and his messed up family. Surely Jesus would not let his herald rot in prison if he was engaging in a national revival project. Maybe John imagined that he would be something like Aaron to, to Moses, that he would be able to carry his staff and speak on behalf of, of Moses the way Aaron did. Instead, Jesus is out there teaching ordinary, everyday people about the things of God and healing their sick. That's great, sure, but is it all that the Messiah is intended to do? 
Is that all he's going to accomplish? Beyond that, Jesus has heard that, or John has heard that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners and tax collectors. This concerns at least John's disciples, who likely remain at large because wanted poster technology was not very advanced at this point. But they come to Jesus and they ask in Matthew chapter 9, we fast, we deny ourselves food just like the Pharisees do. Heck, John ate locust and honey, and that's as gross this week as it was last week. Still disgusting. But you, Jesus, you and your disciples, you're having a grand old time. You're, you're carousing. You're having parties. You're, you're hanging out with, with questionable people while John is in prison. And you get the sense that there's some frustration and disappointment building here. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? And if he is the Messiah, what is he doing? Why isn't he engaged in social overthrow? Why isn't he busting John out of prison? Presumably with a file hidden in a cake, but maybe a mob storming the prison, Bastille style, or with some good old-fashioned fire down from heaven. Jesus could do that. You know, never hurt anybody. But this gets to an important question. Can we trust the character of God even when we don't know the reason for our own disappointments or our own suffering? It's hard, right, sometimes? Trusting God is difficult when your job situation is not panning out the way you expect it. Trusting God is difficult when your marriage is suffering and doesn't meet your expectations. Trusting God is difficult when your kids are not living the life that you envision them. Trusting God is difficult when you're struggling with sickness that won't go away, that isn't easily resolved. These moments test our ability to trust in God, especially if a good job or a happy marriage or perfect kids or good health is the basis for trusting God. If that's the reason we trust God, it's going to be extremely difficult. We set these expectations in place, and then if God doesn't fulfill them as we expect on our timeline, our faith can hit a tailspin. And I think that's what John is experiencing and why he asks Jesus this rather pointed question. And from a more dishonest person, we might expect a response that tells John what he wants to hear. Like, just hang in there, buddy. We're on our way. We're coming to get you out. We called the A-team. We got a good lawyer on retainer. We're on our way. We're going to get you out. Don't worry. But that's not what we get from Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. This is Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, at first glance, this seems like a laundry list of things that Jesus has done but aren't really relevant to the question. This is a little bit like when my wife tells me she needs help around the house because we're about to have company, and I get defensive, and I'm like, I've been doing so much around the house. You know, I went and got gas because it was like slightly cheaper today, and I straightened up the shed. And yeah, I spent two hours fixing a light switch, but I got that two-inch by two-inch box off my desk, so that's cleaner, right? You married guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Anything in the world to keep from mopping a floor. (laughs) But that's not what Jesus is doing. Each of these things is actually a citation from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, usually in the context of God promising future good through his presence with his people. Each of these things is something that Jesus has done and has been recorded up 
in the book of Matthew up until this point. He's healed the lame. He's given sight back to the blind. He's given hearing to the deaf. He's cleansed lepers. He's actually risen people from the dead. He's going to continue to do that. And spoilers, he's actually going to raise from the dead himself. Jesus says to John, I am who you think I am. I am the Messiah that you heralded. You were not wasting your time. You were right. But there is something interesting about this list of prophecies. The last one Jesus mentions, the poor have good news preached to them, comes from Isaiah 61.1, which reads, to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, but the very next line is, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus does not mention that at all. He's telling John that yes, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but that does not mean that all will be well in the moment. It will be hard. John will not be liberated from his earthly prison. His own life will end when Salome, Herod Antipas's niece, is coached by her mom, Herod's illegitimate wife, to demand John's head on a platter after dancing for Herod and getting him to promise whatever she wanted. I told you this family was messed up. John does not get what he most immediately wants from Jesus. He does not get his freedom from prison. He is instead martyred. And Jesus will not always give us what we think we want most. It wasn't what he was promising to John. It's not what he's promising to us. Now, it's not that Jesus, it's not that God does not care about these things. He most certainly does. But he doesn't always care about them in the way that we care about them. He cares about them from a different perspective, from an eternal perspective. Now, we never hear John's response, but that's okay. It's not the most important thing in this story. In fact, in omitting this response, if there even was one, Matthew invites us to answer that question ourselves. Can we trust God even when we are disappointed with the outcome? Can we trust Him when we're in our darkest moments? Part of me wishes I could tell you that it'll work out. Give it enough time, job situation will sort itself out, your marriage will be okay, the kids will be all right, you'll overcome whatever uh, sickness you're facing. But that's not what Jesus has promised us. We might want that. He may even give us that in his time. But it is not what he has promised us. Now before you check out and before you say, what good is Jesus for me then if he, he doesn't give me these things I, I want or even these things I think I need? What even is the good of following him? Why would I waste my time? Before you check out, let's track with Jesus a little bit longer. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so while we may at first be offended by this message from Jesus, let's hear him out. Let's see what he's talking about when he talks about blessing. As John's followers head back to John, Jesus wants to make sure that people know that he's not opposed to John. He's not angry with John. He doesn't hate John. He's not mad at John for asking this question, for putting him on the spot. He's, he loves John. John's family, John's kin, John's somebody he knows. He's okay with getting this question from John and responding to it, right? He doesn't resent this. 
I do think he clarifies a few things, but I think he's genuinely sympathetic to John, as he would be to us in the same situation. And this is what he says, verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John, Jesus says, well, there's a reason people went out to see him. There's a reason they went out into the wilderness. Many of these folks included. Maybe these folks um, were baptized by John personally. They heard his message, repent for the kingdom of, of God is at hand, and they took it seriously. They turned away from sin. Maybe they were his disciples themselves at some point. And Jesus is asking, why did you go out to see this guy in the wilderness? What drew you out there? Now, there's some debate about what Jesus means by reeds shaken in the wind. One commentator I read suggested it was like a, what he's implying is like, did you go out in the wilderness to see like a nice view, you know, to see the, like the foliage, to see a great, you know, landscape. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. I think he's saying these folks did not go out to see the kind of person who bent whatever way the wind was blowing. They didn't go out there because John would tell them what they wanted to hear. They went out because he was preaching repentance from sin. That's never an easy message to receive or deliver, but it's often the right one. And it's attractive in its own right. They also didn't go out into the wilderness to see a well-put-together, snazzy, sharp-dressed man who belongs in the halls of power, rubbing shoulders with kings and princes. They didn't go out to see John because he was politically well-connected and he could get the power and prestige. This dude was out there wearing camel fur, eating bugs. He was not going to get them access to the halls of power. He wasn't going to get them you know, a, a political... Um, uh, might within their context. He wasn't going to turn them into some sort of political machine. That's not why they went out there either. They went out because John was a prophet. He told them hard truths about themselves, hard truths about their society, and he told them about their need for God to move in their lives. But more than a prophet, he had the specific mission of going before God as God came to his people. He was a herald. Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, which says of John, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John's mission means that God is coming to be with his people, and Jesus is that fulfillment. This is good news. This is the greatest news. And in a sense, John then is greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament who could only say that this will happen someday far away in the future. John got to say it's happening now. The kingdom of God is now. So while he's cut from the same cloth as the Old Testament prophets, 
He's in a different category. Although Jesus points out that the kingdom of heaven has always been opposed by violence, and many of those Old Testament prophets, they suffered. They were persecuted. Many were martyred. Jesus, though, goes on to say of John in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was great. Jesus loved John. John was his cousin. They'd known each other before birth. When their mothers had come together while they were pregnant at the same time, John leapt in his mother's womb because of Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, held John in high esteem. He acknowledged that John's ministry was powerful. It affected people. It moved people. But for all of John's expectations of the Messiah, of Jesus, they were too small. He still didn't have the complete picture of what Jesus came to do. He didn't recognize that the paradigm shift that was being made And that's why Jesus goes on and says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now this statement doesn't diminish John at all. It's not a swipe at John. But the message of Jesus, the story of Jesus is greater than John could preach. Jesus was going to turn everything on its head. He didn't come to rescue one people group. He came to rescue all people groups. He didn't come to bust John out of the pokey. He came to liberate us from captivity to sin. He didn't come to resolve a few conflicts and humble a few Pharisees and Herods. He didn't come to make our job situations right or give us the perfect marriage or perfect kids as great as those things would be. He came as a suffering servant destined to die so that we might be reconciled to God. We might be friends with God the way He intended us to be. And He came to rise from the dead so that we might then have eternal life with Jesus Christ and with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in a new creation that he is going to bring with him when he returns one day in the future. John prepared the way for Jesus to come the first time. And he didn't have the whole picture. But we do. That means that no matter how you might rank yourself in the kingdom of God, by virtue of the message you carry, you're greater than John. When I think of my position in the kingdom, it, it could be easy to despair a little bit. I think of guys like Matthew and Paul and Peter and countless saints who have suffered and endured what I have not for the sake of the gospel. I think of men and women who have written great books delving deep into the, the hidden things of God, deep, delving deep into the scriptures and, and helping us all know God better. Or who have worshipped with a depth that I long for, who seem to have a relationship with God on just a different level. And I might think, shoot, I might be pretty close to the least of these that Jesus is talking about. And maybe you feel that way too sometimes. But there is good news for us. We have the complete picture. We have the entire message. And we get to bring that to our world a world that is not all that different from John's. It's a world full of self-righteous religious people and corrupt politicians, and it's full of sickness and death and fruitless labor that has haunted human beings since very nearly the beginning. 
But no matter where you think you are in the strata, the message that you have received, the message that you get to bring to this world as you prepare the way for Jesus' return is greater than anything John the Baptist ever expected. And I want you to remember that, Redeemer. I want you to preach that to yourself when it seems that God has disappointed you. Is what you think you're missing out on? Is what you think you lack what God has actually promised you? Or has He promised you something far, far greater? Thank God that He has a greater plan than we could ever imagine. And that He gives us a complete image, a complete message of that plan so that we might be able to be heralds for Jesus' return. That we get to tell a broken and dying and waiting world that God has come in the person of Jesus. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and He will come again to make all things new. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come before you, hopefully humbled. Father, I know my expectations of you are often not what you have promised, and they're often far too small. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, <clears throat> that you would help us to receive Jesus on his terms, knowing that his terms are greater than anything we could have imagined that his coming and dying is a penalty for our sin so that we might be able to be friends with you again, that we might be able to go before you in prayer and in worship and in fellowship again, that his future return, that we might have a hope for a better future, that these things that he has promised us are so much greater than what we want on our day-to-day basis. Father, I do pray for those needs that we are experiencing right now, whether it's sickness or it's finances or it's relationships. Father, we do know you care about those things. We do pray that we would get a, a taste of this future reality that Jesus will bring when he returns. That you would heal our bodies, if only for a time. That you would heal our relationships. That you would provide for our daily needs as you've instructed us to pray. But Father, I pray that you would keep our eyes fixed firmly on the eastern sky where you promised Jesus will return. We love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church. Our mission is to declare the gospel with our words and display the gospel with our lives to our neighbors and to the nations. And your financial support makes resources like this possible. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting us and our mission at RedeemerChristianChurch.com backslash give. And thank you for listening.